Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, on today's episode, we're going to do, well, we're going to do what we do. We're going to go to the pub, bring you some beer news, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the HA conference with uh, Gary Glass. Before we head into the brewery and talk about, well, some things we've learned and some things we've done, and in the lounge, well, we had an election for the HA governing committee, and for the first time, at, at least that I can remember, everyone who was elected to the HA governing committee was brand new to it. So we sit down and we talk with all five of them to see just exactly what makes them brew. <laughs> and uh, and are they really crazy enough to want to be on the governing committee? Well, they don't have a choice now. That's right. And then, of course, we'll answer some of your questions. We'll give you a quick tip and we'll get you on your way with something other than beer. So sit back. And we'll be right back after these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of Homebrew Con Online, a virtual gathering of homebrewers happening this June 18th through 20th. With an all-star lineup of speakers, HomebrewCon Online is an opportunity to enhance your brewing skills and knowledge, all from the comfort of your own home. Tune in for live seminars, demonstrations, virtual expos, meetups, and happy hours. Learn more and register at homebrewcon.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back. We're going to get this show kicked off, and to do that, we have an announcement or two to make. So uh, Drew's going to fill you in on the latest Brew Files episode, episode number 87, when he talked to our good friend Peter Simons about his new book, Guile Brews. What the heck is a Guile Brew? Well, isn't that what you want to know? And you should listen to the episode <laughs> to find out. But uh, Guile Brewing is the traditional form of brewing that was practiced very heavily in the UK and the Commonwealth, you know, where it's, we usually think of party guile, right? You know, take mash runnings, first runnings, put them into one kettle, take the second runnings, put them into a second kettle. Well, it turns out there's a very complicated, long traditional process that makes that look very simple. And Peter wrote a whole book surrounding sort of the beers of his youth and beyond that all use these sorts of techniques uh, from the UK and Ireland and, it was a really interesting discussion, and it's also one of those ones where you go, oh, man, I think we found the new decoction. <laughs> you mean a really interesting process that you're not going to do? I I think I'll do some of it. But yes, just like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll wait, and you can tell me about it. 
Absolutely. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's called Not One More Vet, as in veterinarian. Uh, you've got like oh, a couple months left to get in on contributing to this. Turns out that uh, as stressed as we all are these days, veterinarians are stressed even more and have an incredibly high suicide rate for a, a particular occupational group. Uh, they take care of our little fuzzy buddies, so we want to help take care of them. Send us a couple bucks, whatever you can afford, by clicking the Patreon link at experimentalbrew.com, and we will pass it along to not one more vet. Amen. And now, it's time for your feedback. And we had one piece of uh, feedback coming from our, my good buddy, Andy Ziskin, who you may remember from the pink drink episode of The Brew Files. You remember back in those times when we all thought rosé beer was going to be the thing, and then hard seltzer hit? Yep. So Andy is a professional brewer, and he wrote in about the dry hopping part that we talked about. He said, last episode, you guys talked about not dry hopping hazy IPAs as early in the primary fermentation. I believe, at least for us, getting at his brewery, this is because we're brewing at least one batch of hazy IPA per week, and we need to be able to harvest the yeast before dry hopping. Typically for us, harvest takes place 1 to 1.5 degrees Play-Doh from our targeted final gravity, and immediately dry hopping after. In addition to enabling harvest, I think it's also for safety. Though we use a hop cannon, I love that term, though we use a hop cannon, breweries that are dry hopping with a ladder from the top of a fermenter risk creating a volcano because hops can act as nucleation points for dissolved gas. We usually get that last 1 to 1.5 Play-Doh to give us a little biotransformation and hop creep thanks to the yeast that are still in suspension. So that's Andy's take. It makes perfect sense. You know, you don't want to have a ton of hot matter in your in your yeast cake, at least if you're going again and again and again with it. Um, and again, I just love the idea of a hop canning. He did also write me later, and I haven't had a chance to research it yet because I can't find my copy. But he said that in the most recent issue of Brew Your Own, somewhere near our column, there are three brewers talking about their hazy secrets and a couple of other reasons that they mentioned for not dry hopping as early in the primary. So. Right. Well, uh, that's that's nice to hear after uh, our little supposition uh, the last time. Uh, so are they dry hopping cold and short like we were talking about? Do we know that? Well, I would imagine if they're dry hopping in the primary for the last one to 1.5 degrees Plato, I'd have to imagine at least short. Probably not as cold as we're talking. Yeah, right. That's what I was thinking also. But at least short. And uh, according to that article, short was one of the keys to limiting the polyphenols from the hops, which I can see being a real advantage for New England IPAs. There you go. Or or hazy IPAs, as I guess they've become generically known now. Huh? It, it, it's either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, whatever works for you. Well, I mean, that was like back in the day when uh, San Diego tried to get everybody to call West Coast IPA a San Diego Pale Ale. Yeah, right. <laughs> Only in this case, the New England guys actually got ahead of the curve. So there you go. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break here and head over to the pub. We'll see you there for some beers and beer news. Stick around. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, 
YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome to the Experimental Brewing Virtual Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your bedroom with your computer. We're having a couple beers 800-some miles apart, and what are you drinking there, Drew? Uh, I'm drinking one of my favorite beers that I haven't had in a long period of time because it's never available where I'm at, and that is Reality Check Pills from Moonlight Brewing Company up in uh, Windsor, California, so just north of uh, San Francisco. Moonlight is the domain of sort of mad genius Brian Hunt. He is really just a mad genius. He makes a lot of really great beers. I haven't seen very many of them because, of course, he's got a very limited distribution. Now, the interesting part is he's partially owned by Lagunitas, which, of course, is now also completely owned by Heineken. So, interesting little chain there. But the reason why I could get his beer now is because of all the loosening of rules due to reasons, he can ship his beer throughout California. So, friend of mine actually went and got a bunch of his beer, both the Reality Check beer and Delhi by Dinghy, double IPA, great name, and he brought me over some because I'm still in quarantine. <laughs> and So it, is, it, is it pretty much a straight-ahead check pills? It's pretty close. I mean, I think it's, it's not as... Um, it's not as soft as I usually think of as check pills. It has more of a, a burnished top character to it. So it's a little bit more of an like an American check pills, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but but it doesn't have like seaweed or cranberries or no, anything like no, that in it. No, no, no. It, uh, in fact, I think if you ask Brian if he would do that, he, he'd slap you. Um, he makes he makes one beer uh, called Death and Taxes, which is probably my favorite Schwartz beer I've ever had. So he's 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 got a he's got a a wild and crazy mind, but a very traditionalist approach. Cool. That's great, man. Yep. And so you can actually order Moonlight Beer to be shipped to your house as long as you live in California. So there you go. <laughs> so some of you can. Yep. And you, buddy? I am uh, drinking my Ublon Schuf Homage. Uh, I'm running low on commercial beer around here, except for uh, 
a huge amount of ale song, which I'm not breaking out every day. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about it more once we get over to the brewery. It's it's a uh, not a bad beer. It didn't turn out exactly like I wanted it to. Uh, fortunately, I have everything on hand to do another batch. But uh, it's it's an enjoyable beer, uh, and it's nine point four percent, so it helps you forget. That's always nice, and right now, that's right, man. That's that's why I'm drinking these days. And so, speaking of the before times and the after times, and what's going to change, been looking around at a couple of stories that was out there, and a brewery in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, Atlanta's doing some opening activities. They uh, called Monday Night Brewing. They've actually put together a survey that they put out to their customers to say, hey, so uh, when we start opening again, what sort of behavior can we expect from you in the tap room? And I thought it was interesting. I mean, they put it out and they, they basically they found their customers who had who'd come to the tap room over the last three months and sent them a survey link. You know, that's what happens when you enter your information at a point of sales and then said, OK, well, hey, when do you expect after we're open that you would come back to the uh to the tap room. And what was interesting was a full 35% of the respondents to the survey didn't think they were going to come back to the brewery tap room until at least July or later. And of that 35%, almost 14% were saying sometime after August. So I, I got to say, man, as anxious as I am to get out there, it's going to be a long, long time for me. Uh, I keep hearing things saying that uh, even when we open back up, uh, older people with pre-existing conditions probably shouldn't go out and do things, and that's me. Yeah, well, and then I'm the pre-existing condition side, so I'm sort of in the same boat. Um, the other thing I did think was interesting, they asked some things like, hey, you know, after the, after this is all reopened, in three months after everything is open again, how often do you plan on visiting brewery tap rooms? You know, same frequency, more than normal, less than normal. And 61% were just like, oh, yeah, no, same, same. And what I did think was interesting was about 11 said they were visit more than normal. I guess either making up for lost time or trying to help support the, the breweries that they're, that they're going to visit. Um, and then, of course, uh, Looking at, like, you know, they gave them a whole bunch of factors to say, hey, you know, what's going to make you feel safe and being able to come back to bars, restaurants, and breweries? And the most important thing that, that people factored in was what does the CDC and the WHO say? Yeah, right. And then the uh, second one was when my own research tells me it's okay. <laughs> so that's a that's a large number of people who are really uh, taking this very seriously and uh, aren't just going to run out and do it because they miss it. Uh, well, and the other one I thought was interesting in there was they asked people, so if it's still available, how much do you expect to use a brewery's drive through options for to-go sales, or, you know, like a lot of breweries are doing nowadays? And what I thought was really interesting, because I've found some of this to be very convenient, is only about 55% of the respondents actually said that they would use it sometimes, with a full more than a quarter saying that they would use it rarely. And actually, if you factor in the people who said they wouldn't use it at all, that becomes like a, almost a third. So, like, to me, if if breweries were still allowing to-go sales like, like they are, I, I'd, I'd still be tempted, I think, to use them. But then again, you and I are in a special boat. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm, even if I wasn't in a special boat, I think that I would still have a tendency to do that uh, just for the convenience and for the fact that oh, I don't want to say I'm antisocial, but uh, I, I seldom see going and hanging out in a bar as something that I'm really looking forward to doing. Yep. 
Well, and then to jump from Atlanta, let's go to South Africa real quick because this one amused me. Uh, I think everybody has heard, every homebrewer has heard like all the stories of concerns from various people like, you're going to go make yourself go blind. Oh, you could die from drinking homebrew. And in South Africa, I guess they banned alcohol sales during this period of time. Uh, so obviously when they did that, you know, it was the idea that, oh, you know, well, what are we going to do? Because people aren't going to stop drinking. We learned that lesson with Prohibition. Um, and South Africa, admittedly, they, they banned it because what they were trying to do was flatten the, flatten the curve more and also improve people's health during a period of time when there's a health crisis. And so they were, there was a lot of concerns because they're busting people for doing some various things. And I was like, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, you have to be careful because, well, homebrewers is safe. There are a lot of people who are turning to adulterative practices and, and, and doing distillation. And so <laughs> apparently they're now having a moonshine problem. <laughs> Well, you know, and this is not the first time that I remember this happening. I, I don't know if it was 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. I seem to remember another similar situation in South Africa where people were distilling and making dangerous spirits, uh, although it was called homebrewing back then and kind of gave people the wrong impression. Yeah, and they were also saying that, um, well, you know, Fermentation is a process that needs to be controlled and, you know, don't, don't rush it. And then it says the brews people make at home are for human consumption and thus people making them need to be aware of the food safety requirements to ensure the product doesn't cause harm to whoever will be consuming it. This means making use of ingredients safe for human consumption, making sure all utensils used during the brewing process are clean and sanitized, making sure there is no introduction of other material like methylated spirits, you know, bad moonshine. Yeah, right. There you go. Yeah. Which are harmful. I was like, okay, well, I've, you know, yeah, okay, all that other stuff is uh, fairly normal, but who, what? No, nobody's adding methylated spirits. Stop. Um, and they did also point out that uh, the other disadvantage is that people will soon run out of normal ingredients, as many stores have stopped selling brewer's yeast and have also stopped selling malted sorghum, which, remember, is a very important ingredient in a lot of African brewing. So, <laughs> guess what, people? <laughs> We've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that, man. Uh, obviously, I, I guess the the uh, takeaway is don't do stupid stuff. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, don't do distilling if you don't know what you're doing because that's when it actually becomes dangerous. Uh, yeah, and and then probably there's not going to be anything wrong with the homebrewed beer as long as they don't start adding a lot of weird crap to it. Yep. All right, and then in one final one final bit of news before we get into the big bit of news. Um, there was a really great article on Vine Pair where they were talking about uh, uh, Dark Mild making a comeback in Britain. Now, I love Dark Mild. It is it is one of my favorite drinks right there along with Saison and Cream Ale and all that. Um, I don't know if it's actually going to make a comeback. What do you think? I don't know, man. Uh I see it so rarely, uh, it's hard to call it a comeback, you know? I mean, in order, to, in order to be a comeback, it had to have been there originally, right? Yep. Well, I mean, in the UK it was. So, and this article is focusing on the UK, but it says, uh, this resurgence in popularity of Dark Mild is perhaps symptomatic of the growing trend of craft beer looking to its forebears and a greater appreciation for more historic and foundational styles. Uh, it says, uh, I think now it has maybe even more relevance with some craft beer drinkers. Bill Arnott, the British founder of Seattle's Machine House Brewery, says, 
those looking for more balance and nuance away from the heavy-handed beers that define craft beer. So, uh, kind of uh, kind of interesting. I will tell you what, if people could actually make dark mild a thing, I would I would freaking adore you. The problem is that almost every brewery I've known that's ever put out a dark mild, it sits and it doesn't sell. Uh, like my favorite is uh, Eagle Rock Solidarity, you know, here in LA. And that was that was one of the brewery's uh, core launch beers, and they had to stop brewing it because they just couldn't sell it. Makes me sad. You know, I guess I guess I would have to take exception somewhat too to the the fact that he's implying that craft beers have no subtlety or nuance. Uh, obviously, a 100 IBU, eight and a half percent IPA is meant to whap you upside the head. But there are a lot of really good craft beers out there, full of subtlety and nuance. Yep. So, but again, it's interesting. I, I'm, I swear, I'm fairly certain I see an article like this every two years or so. Uh, I hope it takes at some point. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, we'll see. I, I, a well-made dark mild is a really, really good thing. It's hard to do because, as we've discussed before, when you lower your ABV, you use less ingredients, and then you have more problem getting the flavor out of those few ingredients you put in there. So when you find a good one, it is really, really impressive. Indeed. Now, I think it's time for us to, well, talk some big news. Yeah, uh, we have Gary Glass, the director of the American Homebrewers Association, with us today. And we're going to be talking to him about the HomebrewCon in Nashville. We've got Gary Glass on the line with us again today. Hiya, Gary. I'm doing great. How are you? Oh, good, man. Uh, thanks for joining us again. And there's some big news, not necessarily great news, about HomebrewCon, huh? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's news that people were probably anticipating that, uh, you know, we're, given the circumstances with the coronavirus, uh, there's just no way for us to be holding a 3,000-person event in Nashville in, in June. Uh, so we just had to work out the final details of that to 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 get out of our obligations there, but very excited that we're we're it's not a total loss. In fact, it's a, in, in some ways a, a win. We're we're moving things to uh, HomebrewCon online, so we're able to to utilize um, many of the speakers. We've got uh, twenty speakers lined up for for HomebrewCon online, um, and and able to offer the, the that content as well as. You know, some social interaction events and doing surprise giveaways and sponsored demos and, and some things that we actually wouldn't be able to do in person in Nashville. So, I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways, this is, you know, while, while it's very disappointing that we're not going to be able to get together in person, um, we're, we're at least able to, to, uh, put something on for, for our, our members and the, and the attendees of, of HomebrewCon. So how is that going to work, man? So, uh, we, as I said, we've got 20 speakers lined up, including our, our planned keynote speaker, Bailey Spalding from, from Jackalope Brewing Company. Uh, so we'll be using, uh, Crowdcast for that. Um, and we'll, we'll also be using a various other platforms. We're going to do some of the meetups that we normally do at HomebrewCon. So like the, the Mead meetup, the, the, um, the Women Brewers meetup. And, uh, I think we'll, we typically have a Milk to Funk. Uh, meet up. So we're going to do those via WebEx. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, uh, sponsored demos. So some of the, our, our exhibitors will be 
of demonstrating the equipment that they that they have uh, for for attendees and and we'll finish things off with a, a combination a award ceremony. We, we won't be judging national homebrew competition, but we still have the the governing committee recognition award, the Radagast Club of the Year award, and the, the Homebrew Shop of the Year award. So we're going to announce those awards and kind of intermix some uh, uh, prize giveaways from uh, from sponsors. So opportunity to to win some cool swag and um, you know, and then we'll also have a, a couple of um, uh, half hour, um, happy hours, uh, mixed in. So, you know, obviously it's a, it's a brew your own, bring your own, uh, brew event, but, uh, you know, I think we could still, uh, still have a good time even if we're sitting at a desk in front of a screen. You know, man, it, it'll be different, but it'll be cool. Uh, I mean, I know that our club, We've been doing online meetings, and everybody goes, well, you know, it's a drag not to see people in person, but this is actually very interesting and works out really well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I've been doing uh, online club meetings as well, and I found, like, you know, I've, I've, I'm doing these WebEx meetings with with our staff all day long, and, like, oh, do I really want to do that? But then the opportunity to meet in a social interaction, it's actually been really refreshing because, I, you know, just like everybody else, I'm stuck at home and I'm, I'm not getting that direct social interaction. So it's it's really a, a, an awesome opportunity to to be able to get together with with folks from you know all all over the country and all over the world. And, and you know, since Drew is basically antisocial, this works out really well for him. I'm, I am not antisocial. I'm just awkwardly social. <laughs> yeah, I've never thought of Drew as being. <laughs> No, but I had to draw him into the conversation somehow. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think it's interesting that, you know, because I know you just said you were doing a bunch of homebrew club meetings. Denny's done a bunch of homebrew club meetings. I'm doing a bunch of homebrew club meetings. And what's kind of nifty, I think, is the fact that in a way we're able to expand the network of who's who we know, who who are who are the homebrewers in our community. Um my club's been doing uh, local happy hours every Friday, and they we always thought they were just going to be local, but now we've got people from Miami and San Diego and all around the country actually joining us to you know share a beer and talk about beer and just oh. be goofy for two hours. So I'll take it. So, so Gary, how do people get in on all this? Uh, well, it's... Uh, the Homebrewcon Online. If you go to Homebrewcon Online, you can you can register there. It is ninety nine dollars, um, and you know if you're not a member of the American Homebrewers Association, you can uh, become a member and register for one hundred thirty two dollars. So you basically get five bucks off by doing it that way, um, and and that gets you access to all of the live streaming content, but also all of the recorded content and. The way Crowdcast works is that you know, as soon as those uh, seminars are are actually completed live, the recordings become available. Uh, so you can you can tune into those anytime, and we'll keep those available to to our registered attendees through the end of the year. So cool! So you access all of that content, and you know, I mean, I think you know, I, I know that there's there's a lot of free online content out there, but I mean, I think if you look at the uh, at what we've got lined up. For for uh, these sessions, uh, you'll see that there's just really high quality content here. And not only that, 
those registration dollars go to support the, the American Homebrewers Association. And, and right now, we, we could definitely use that support. Well, I was going to say, most people don't realize that uh, that HomebrewCon is a big revenue generator for the for the organization. It is. It most definitely is. And, you know, the not only that, but the National Homebrew Competition, which we also had to, to cancel. And so, you know, we, we, won't, we aren't expecting to, to net nearly what we were planning on for, for HomebrewCon with HomebrewCon Online, but um, you know, at least we can we can continue to offer uh, this this content to to our members, uh, and and hopefully uh, make you know make a little bit of revenue off of it as well. Yeah, no, it, it's really cool because if people's schedules don't allow them to make one of the sessions, then you'll have the recording available like right away, so they can access it uh, at their leisure. So, uh, is there anything else people need to know about this whole affair? Well, you know, I guess there's there's one thing that I just, I really want to point out is that uh, there's there are we actually have a couple of sessions that weren't originally planned for for HomebrewCon that became available because we're doing this online. Uh, so the the Brewers, the, the American Homebrewers Association is a division of the Brewers Association, and the BA has a, a we we have a, an executive chef, uh, um, Chef Adam Dooley, and so. When we started talking about HomebrewCon Online, he proposed getting together with, you know, himself and Vinny and Natalie Chalurzo from Russian River and doing a food and beer pairing. And so we're going to have a couple of uh, homebrew recipes from, uh, from Russian River. And then Adam's going to pair those with four different, uh, four different meals. And he's going to be able to broadcast that from his kitchen. So you can see how he does it, which we obviously couldn't do if we were doing this in Nashville. So, uh, you know, kind of a unique opportunity that, that came about because we we're, we're having to make this shift to, to uh, doing it online. And we're also going to be able to get uh, Lars Garshall, uh, who, who just published uh, the Historical Brewing Techniques book. Uh, he, he's in Norway, and so he wasn't able to, to come out for HomebrewCon this year, but he can uh, present to us uh, online. Uh, those are a couple of additions that we wouldn't have uh, if we were doing this in person. That's great, man. It's wonderful to see Lars getting the recognition he deserves. I started uh, using some of his uh, information in my seminars 15 years ago, and finally people have gotten hip to what he's done. For sure. Uh, you know, it is, the, the knowledge he is spreading is, is pretty astounding, and you know, seeing uh, the, the yeast that we were getting, that he's recovered from uh, from some of these Norwegian breweries is now being used all over the world is, is pretty darn cool. Yeah, when we talked to him uh, uh, for like uh, Homebrew All-Stars, he was the first interview in the book, um, and he really mentioned for that that he's not really as much of a brewer as a historian, and I think that it's really cool to get the cultural side of things in on this. Yeah, I can't wait to actually you know dig further into that book, so that'll, that'll be fun. Gary, I know that, so no Nashville this year, but where are we going right. next? We will be in San Diego next year. Come back to San Diego to a completely renovated town and country hotel and resort and we actually have some additional outdoor space that uh, we didn't have when we were there last time in 2015 so i think we're going to take what was one of the best uh club nights and uh kickoff parties that we've ever had and and step it up a notch i'm really excited to be going back to san diego yeah me too man i i actually love that venue even before it was renovated i i had a great time there really enjoyed myself so i'm real excited about doing it and uh hopefully i'll be able to travel by then 
Well, and I do want to make the point, because I know that some people are going to be like, hey, well, why aren't we going back to Nashville next year? The problem is that whenever you're doing a big convention like this, these contracts are signed years ahead. So it, it may be a little bit of time before we can get back to Nashville, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. I, I absolutely hope we, we can be in Nashville again. We, we can schedule it for a, for a future year in Nashville. But you're, you're absolutely right. We're, we're scheduling years in advance. And so that's challenging when you've got an event that, that has to be able to accommodate 3,000 people. Um, those venues fill up well in advance. So navigating, you know, events that or venues that can, uh, that can both, you know, handle us bringing in all this beer, including homebrew. And, um, you know, there's, there's just a limited number of venues that can do that. And then for the size of event, we have to be planning these things years in advance. Don't you remember the days when we could do all this in a hotel ballroom? I, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My I life did. was a lot easier back then. Yeah, really. I, <laughs> I can imagine, man. So uh, before we wrap things up, Gary, why don't you give people that link one more time to sign up? Sure, uh, homebrewcon.org. Oh, geez, that's easy, huh? Even even I can remember that. <laughs> we'll, we'll give you five minutes, and then I'll quiz you. <laughs> yeah, what was that again? All right, man. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we'll see you for online homebrewcon, and I'm sure I'll talk to you before that again. Uh, say hi to Aaron for me, and uh, talk to you soon. Will do. Thanks, right. guys. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, it's a bit of a bummer that we're not going to be able to go back to Nashville, well, for a little while. Completely understandable the way that contracts get signed. Um, and I'm also super excited to see what is going to happen with the online version of the con and the content that we can see there. And this brings me to a good point. Start paying attention, people, because if you haven't, there's a lot of good beer content going up for relatively low cost or no cost. Escarpment Labs up in Canada just ran a couple of days of seminars. I'm seeing seminars pop up from other breweries. Uh, New Realm has been doing uh, seminars. It's just all over the place. There's content there for you to learn from, from people that, well, you normally wouldn't have had a chance to listen to before. So go and take advantage of that. Go and take advantage of what the Homebrew Con is going to do. Go take advantage of all of this because what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, really. And the other thing, too, is that uh, by signing up for the virtual homebrew con uh, that the AHA is putting on, you can help support them. Uh, it's it's tough times at the AHA and the Brewers Association. They've had to lay off a bunch of people. I realize that's no different from any number of other organizations and situations out there. But this is one that you can uh, you can help by doing. The the price to sign up for the virtual homebrew con is very reasonable. You get several days worth of sessions to uh, check out, and you get to support a great organization that supports all of us. So please go sign up for the virtual homebrew con, and we'll see you there. And now we're gonna move over to the brewery and talk about. Well, we just have like this whole long list of topics, beery, that we're going to be talking about. So we're going to head over there, and we'll see you in a minute. As a family-owned and run business, Weist invites you and your family to be even more involved with homebrewing this spring with our Spring Saver private collection. 
dive into the science behind brewing and the unique characteristics of the four different species in this release. Inspired by our Oregon roots, 1217 West Coast IPA allows your hops and malts to shine with a balanced profile. The complexity of 3031 Saison Brett blend is perfect for warmer temps, and aging will improve with the season. Rounding out the possibilities is 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis for your next kettle sour. Test your skills with one of our pro brewer recipes at yeastlab.com. These strains are available now through the end of June. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. Welcome to the brewery, and we've got a whole assortment of beery things to talk about today. And the first thing is a little note about star sand. So basically, uh, even though a lot of people had said that uh, star sand was effective against those things, uh, Five Star Chemicals had not uh, actually qualified it as that. So I was kind of waiting to hear from them, and I did, and you can use it. So there you go. There you go. And what have you been brewing, bud? Oh man, let's uh, let's go through things here. I've got uh, I've got a batch of my no tie brown and American brown ale about ready to keg, and uh, I have to admit that it was a stunningly good batch. I'm I'm very very happy with this one. Uh, I had harvested some uh, 1450 from previous batches, and it did me well on this one. So I'm looking forward to getting that one kegged. Uh, I have uh, the Ublan Shouf homage that I did on tap now, uh, as I referred to back in the pub. Uh, I'm drinking it. Didn't kind of turn out exactly the way that I was hoping it would. Um, it, uh, the, the hop character is really not coming through the way that uh, I wanted it to. It's a, a nice kind of Belgian golden strong. It isn't really clearing up very well. And I'm attributing that to the fact that the yeast was a bit old and I had coaxed it back to life. The work coming out of the kettle that went into the fermenter was absolutely crystal clear and beautiful. But the, the beer kind of has a persistent cloudiness to it, and I think it's the fact that I had taken a year-and-a-half-old smack pack and coaxed it back to life. And the yeast, although it fermented well and there's no off flavors, the yeast just is not flocculating as well as I would like it to. I can, I can tell that it's the yeast, not only from the way it looks, but from the, the mouth feel. Uh, for, and actually, you know, there's 
there's just that little bit of grit to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so fortunately I have brand new yeast, all the hops and grain ready to go. So I'm going to brew another batch of it here real soon and compare. And then I'll know uh, if it was the yeast or not, or something that I dick chimped in my process. And then uh, last weekend for virtual big brew, I threw together an IPA. No big surprise. I make lots and lots of IPAs. But I usually refer back to a template and just change a couple things and make kind of my standard IPA. This one was a little bit different. I decided, you know, I have a bunch of malts around here that I hardly ever use. So I started with uh, Mecha Grade Lamanta for a base malt, which is, that's pretty normal for me. But then I threw in two pounds, which came out to be, oh, maybe like 18% of the Mecha Grade Opal malt, which they call a toasted slash toffee malt. So I thought, well, you know, what the heck, in an IPA, if I get it bitter enough, that could be a very interesting contrast. And I had some carapils around, so I decided I'd put in half a pound of carapils, just because I hadn't used carapils for so long. It's been years and years and years. I wanted to see what what it did, why I might want to use it in the future, or why I might want to not use it. Hopping-wise, I... Uh, Bittered with some uh, Pacific Northwest Chinook, and uh, I finished up with some Michigan Chinook that we've talked about before. Our, our good friends Jeff and Susan Rankert, who've been on here before and will be on again in the future, sent each of us a, a couple pounds of the Michigan Chinook hops, which have a very nice pineapple character to them. So I added those to the IPA at Flame Out, and I'm going to be dry hopping heavily with them with the short cold dry hopping method. And uh, probably most radically for me, uh, I didn't make a starter, and I didn't use Y-East 1450. Y-East had sent us some of their seasonal releases to check out. I had two packs of the 1217 West Coast IPA yeast. Hey, that sounds great. You know, if, if the toasted toffee malt adds a bit of sweetness, hopefully this yeast will help dry it out to kind of counterbalance that. And instead of making a starter, I just threw in two smack packs direct. They were fairly recent. I think the date on them was March 20th. So, you know, they were just over a month old. And within five hours, I had a steady stream of CO2 coming off of my fermenter. So I was very, very happy with that. Saved me a little bit of hassle and got me out of my my comfort zone a little bit into doing something new. (laughs) Well, when you said the opal, which which opal did you use? Did you use the twenty two or the forty four? Forty four. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. the, the uh, they give slightly different tasting notes on the twenty two versus the forty four. Both of them are very interesting malts, though, so that's good. Yeah, I I didn't have any of the twenty two around. I guess I should have said that. So I just used the forty four, which was here because again, it was like a, a case of using stuff that I had. Yeah, well, why go out when you've got stuff involved? Really? And you've been brewing up a storm too, huh? Well, and just like you had the Ublon homage that you did that didn't come out quite the way that you wanted it to, I had a homage that I did to Vic Le Bon Vu from Brasserie Dupont. And I called that one uh, Triple Wish. I used South African hops in this one. And interestingly, just like you, I was having problems getting it to clear. It's still kind of muddy in the keg, so I'm just like leaving it alone for a little bit. You know, even though I, I had biofined it, this thing was still just not wanting to to drop clear so i'm going to give it a little bit of time because i mean i got time just to see whether or not it comes clear and gets nice and bright so i I was a little disappointed in that because i was really looking forward to that beer it's got the nice saison characteristics to it but the other thing i've also noticed is that because of 
I don't know if it's because of the sugar choice or how much sugar I used in it. It feels more like a triple to me than it does a Saison. So, oh, well, back to the drawing board. <laughs> yeah, man, that's, that's you know, the way that I try and look at it. You know, I don't get bummed out over a batch that doesn't turn out exactly the way that I wanted it to. It's just like, oh, well, I guess I got to brew some more. Yeah, better drink this one, too. Uh, the other thing I did was just like you you brewed on uh, National Homebrew Day, I did as well. I posted it out there to see what people would guess I was making. Uh, you got it right, but I think that's because you cheated. Uh, <laughs> I, I know I know you like cream ale, and I saw the corn in there, and I went, okay, that's got to be cream ale. Yeah, except for, of course, as most cream ales are done these days, I did not use an ale yeast in this. This has a lager strain, a.k.a. everybody's favorite, 3470. And, uh, yeah, it's burbling away right now. My garage is over 90 degrees now, but uh, thanks to the glycol, it's staying nice and chill at about 53 degrees currently. Uh, so I'll give that a couple of days, and then I imagine it will be ready to go by the time we talk next. And I'm still debating. I did I did my classic mix of Magnum for Bittering and uh, Willamette for sort of a late kettle hop. And now I think... Going to debate. I was thinking I might want to dry hop it with some of the American nobles that I have. Yeah, maybe like put a little laurel or something in there. Yeah, you know what? I've been considering that uh, for a beer coming up too. Uh, I think that uh, those conicals with the glycol unit will be uh, really prime for using the American nobles as like maybe a dry hop. Yep, exactly. And then a couple of other things I did. So you remember I said earlier in the show that there's a lot of really good content coming out. Also on National Homebrew Day, normally we don't get to be involved in Big Brew here in Southern California because of the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, but they went online and virtual this year for obvious reasons, and I got to talk for a little bit at the end of it, but they also had some really great speakers. They had uh, Addy from Omega speaking about you know yeast and selections and all this sort of good stuff. He and I, it seems, disagree on the idea about how to run a Saison. It's allowed. And then uh, we also heard from a guy here in Southern California who worked for Budweiser forever who put together a talk about draft maintenance and how you actually can build like a, a jockey box or a festival setup. Because after all, that's what people are supposed to do at these festivals. The club set up bars and everybody's pouring their beer. So that was kind of cool. Uh, we also had my club meeting this month. So uh, we gave a yeast talk with the woman who taught me all about yeast, uh, Dr. M.B. Rains. And we're going to put that up on the Maltos Falcons YouTube channel, so we'll include a link to it uh, so everybody can see it there. And another idea that I saw during that Southern California Homebrewers Festival that I think is really stupidly rad is people talking about doing a homebrew exchange. Now, bear with me, because I think most of us uh, have become familiar with the idea of trading homebrew. What's happened is that the guys at the Society of Barley Engineers, people remember we had Derek Springer on the show a couple times, Society of Barley Engineers, they've put up a Google Sheet up on their, you know, for their club to use. And the Google Sheet basically lays out, okay, hey, you know, uh, I'm so-and-so, I've got this beer, I'm going to leave it in this cooler, put something else in the cooler, take what you want, right? And they're hosting a cooler at some centralized location, kept in the shade, kept away from everything, with sanitizers everywhere, gloves and all that sort of good stuff. And the idea is that club members can register, put their beers into the cooler, and they can take other beers out. So you bring six beers, you're allowed to take six beers, and you mark it down on the spreadsheet. And that way people can still exchange homebrew, people can try it, people can ask for people to take their homebrew to actually do a tasting on and give them notes. 
and then talk about it. So it's kind of a nifty way to still kind of get the beer out there into each other's hands. So I thought that was a really cool idea, and I'm going to try and do it with the Falcons as well so that we can have some homebrew exchange still happening. And in that, that's a, that, that's a very interesting concept, man. And done correctly, it should be okay. Right, exactly. So I got to work and find us a good location to, to do that with and somebody who's willing to manage all that. But that's happening in San Diego, and now we're going to do it up here. And I think even the guys down in Long Beach have adopted it. It's a really good idea, so we'll see what's happening. And the other thing that we decided to do as the Falcons is we're going to do a quarantine club brew. So we do a club brew every month where we get the members together. We have our shop system that's capable of doing 50 gallons, and then people take beer away. Well, we can't do that right now. But what we're going to do is we're going to send out a recipe to everybody, or at least a recipe suggestion. And have everybody brew it and then exchange it via this homebrew exchange. And then that way we can all share. And hopefully what we can do is actually get a club meeting together where we're going to have all the same beer available to people. And people can try each of the beers or some selection thereof. So, again, idea of how to preserve the continuity of a club during a time like this. Cool, man. I hope it works out. Absolutely. And now I think it's time for us to lounge. Yep, we're going to head over to the lounge and listen to Drew having a chat with the new members of the AHA Governing Committee. Stick around, we're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Hey, welcome over here to the lounge. Uh, we just had five new members elected to the AHA Governing Committee, and we thought it might be kind of fun for you to hear a little bit from them and uh, their backgrounds, stuff like that. So Drew had a chat with them. But just in case, oh, here we go, burping again. Just in case you may not be familiar with the governing committee and what it does, uh, it's an advisory board uh, of, God, I can't even remember how many, 13 people? Does 15. that sound right? 15. 15. It's an advisory board of 15 people that gives feedback to the AHA, throws ideas out to them, um, 
contrary to what many people seem to think, the governing committee does not have authority to actually implement anything. We're there strictly to assist the AHA with their initiatives and ideas. Sometimes uh, we'll sit there and toss around ideas that they may or may not implement. Sometimes they'll throw out ideas to us to get uh, our feedback on it. So it's it's interesting to have a broad so so it's advantageous to have a, a broad cross section of people on the AHA governing committee with experiences in different areas and stuff like that. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. And it's also interesting to see the different skill sets that everybody brings, along with the different attitudes and all that. And so what we did was I decided that I would sit down and we would talk with the five new members of the governing committee, just so you can figure out, well, what makes them brewers. All right, well, welcome back, folks. It's time for us to, well, lounge, but we're going to do something a little different this week. Uh, as you know, Denny is sitting on the AHA governing committee, has been on the governing committee for a long while. I used to be on the governing committee as well. And, well, we have a brand new set of people running on the AHA governing committee. We had the election. The election results are out. And what's actually striking to me this year is this is the first time I can ever think that it's everybody's new. No incumbents won. So this is a completely new set of people who are going to be helping uh, with the AHA. But enough about the HA. Let's talk about beer. And I'm just going to uh, go around the, the, the proverbial horn here and uh, ask people to introduce themselves. So, uh, Amy, why don't we start with you? All right. So my name is Amy Martin, and I live in Frankfurt, which is a small harbor town in northern Michigan. Awesome. All right. And then we got Annie. Annie's been on the show before a few times. Yes. Hi, it's Annie Johnson. I live in Seattle by way of Sacramento, um, and I'll, I'll answer the other questions later. <laughs> well, and, and this time you're not on a ferry, right? No. Last time I spoke with Drew and Denny, Tony Oxner was on from Micro Homebrew, and, and um, I was on a ferry coming back from Whidbey Island. It was awesome. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Well, And another repeat guest. Cassie, say hi to everybody. Hi, uh, I'm Cassie Salinas. I'm also in Seattle, Washington. And then uh, Chris. I am uh, Chris Hummert. Uh, I am not in Seattle, Washington. I'm actually in Salem, Oregon, uh, about halfway between uh, Portland and Eugene. And then our last new guest is uh, Gail. Hi, I'm Gail Milburn. I'm also from Michigan, and I am from Dearborn, Michigan, the other side of the state. Um, outside of Detroit. And I, I think this is funny that we have two pockets of places where people are from in this particular election cycle. Uh, obviously, you all did a good job of uh, getting out the vote. I, I will say, uh, if it, to make things more interesting, this is Cassie. I'm from Michigan uh, before I went to Seattle, so maybe I'm in both pockets. <laughs> yeah, you double dipped on the votes. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, Let's. Uh, I think the real thing that we should talk about is uh, well, let's talk about our beer histories here. Uh, Amy, how did you get into good beer, and what do you 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 actually work for a brewery, right? I do. Um, I work for Stormcloud Brewing Company, which is right here in Frankfurt. Um, I work in the marketing department, and I'm also responsible for our cloud spotters, which is what we call our mug club membership. So um, the way I first got into craft beer is when I was freshly 21. I had a friend that brought some Oberon to a grill out and 
I fell in love. It was definitely my gateway beer into the whole craft world. And after that, I was so excited about all the different beer styles. I couldn't wait to taste everything. And um, one of the local bottle shops where I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the time, also sells homebrew equipment. And I was in there buying beer so frequently that they suggested I try making it. So I did. What was the first beer that you made? Um, The first beer I made was an American IPA. Uh, I'm sure I named it something fun, but I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. And an IPA is always a good way to start. It seems to be our style now. Uh, Annie, how about you? Yes. Well, I started brewing in 1998 because I just like beer. I mean, and I talked to my mom about it and she said, well, just make your own. You make everything else. So I got a a homebrew kit in Fort Bragg, California, um, which is I think most people know where Fort Bragg. That's the home of um, uh, Old Rasputin, Mm -hmm. um, North Coast Brewing. So I got it and I and I first beer I ever made was with my best friend, Rosie, and we made um a nut brown. I think that's what they made everyone make way back in the Stone Age. You had to do nut brown. But interesting enough, I grew out grew up in a small town outside of Chico, California. So in high school, I would have Sierra Nevada, and I thought it was disgusting, sour, bitter, nasty, and I I um, opted for Miller High Life or Schmitz. <laughs> but that was 1983, so that was a long time ago. So. Anywho. <laughs> See, that must be one of those Northern California, Southern California distinctions, because down here, I think everybody, when I started, because I started in 99, so a year after you, uh, down here, I think everybody started with a pale ale first. Yeah. See, I, I, um, yeah, we had, you know, I, I just, I went with the kit. We we did it. We named it um, after Tim Brown on the Raiders, so it was a Tim Brown ale. But then I made a, an amber, and I think, because amber is my, my favorite style to drink. Um, you know, like a house beer because I love Jamaica Red and and Red Tail was really big. So, you know, that that was my next foray. And I and I, I still brew it. Well, you're showing your age with the comment about Red Seal and Ambers. Those I have some- no problem with that. I just turned 55 and I feel 55. <laughs> Beats the alternative. All right, Cassie. Yeah. How did you get into craft craft beer and, and homebrewing? Yeah, so much like Amy, uh, my my intro to beer was at a uh, craft beer bar in Michigan called Ashley's. It's in my uh, college town of Ann Arbor, Michigan. I love that place. If you uh, are nearby, I totally recommend popping in. Um, I my first craft beer that I like really really enjoyed was actually. Uh, uh, New Holland's Dragon Milk, Dragon's Milk Stout, which ironically I can't even drink anymore because I'm vegan. Uh, but uh, I just loved it. I remember drinking it and being like, wow, beer is good. Because before that, my exposure to beer was like, I, I thought of, you know, like smelly, uh, light American beers that I just didn't like. You know, they, they smelled like skunk to me, didn't love them. So I didn't think I was a beer person. And then uh, as I got more into beer through that craft bar, because they had this like, Uh, mug club type thing where you like if you drank different beers you could get your name on the wall and i don't know as a 21 year old with a lot of time on my hands i was like sure sounds fun uh never did get my name on the wall didn't drink quite enough for that uh but it started a pretty uh i guess 
wonderful, you know, relationship with beer that I, I super love. Um, I met my husband, uh, in like, what year did we meet? 2014, I guess. I think, uh, I met my husband and he also really loved beer. Uh, and it was something that we bonded on, I guess, when we were still just friends. And, uh, eventually, uh, we started dating and one of the first things we did together as hobby was we brewed a beer. Um, it was terrible. It was a pineapple Hefeweizen because I like, you know, weird flavor combinations. And for some reason, because I didn't know anything about brewing, I was like, Oh yeah, I'll just brew something that sounds interesting to me. Should have gone with the, something that is more, you know, simple so you can get the base style. Right. But I didn't know that then. Uh, it was terrible. It was not drinkable. It was a sink four for sure. But, um, I don't know. It's I, We kept with it. It's something I love doing with uh, Frank. It, it makes me feel like closer to him and to this community. So I'm, I'm glad I didn't give up after that stinker. Yeah. Color me shocked that you did something with uh, excessive exuberance to start with. Yeah, you know me, Drew. <laughs> All right. And Chris, what got you into, into good beer and homebrewing? Well, uh, I was the typical college drinker back in the early 2000s. Uh, I was, you know, drinking uh, uh, Beast Dice and PBR. Uh, eventually, I went to a bar one night, and I remembered somebody gave me a Bridgeport IPA, and I was like, "Holy cow, this beer has flavor!" <laughs> and I was kind of hooked from there. Bridgeport was IPA was my go-to uh, beer for quite a while. Uh, and then um, uh, I got home brewing. I thought, well, I figured out that I could make my own beer, and I had a buddy who started it, uh, who got me to start on it. And then uh, my first beer was a clone of Deschutes Drop or a Deschutes Mirror Pond Pale Ale. Uh, and then my second one was a uh, uh, Widmere's Drop Top Amber Ale. So. See, definitely showing your your regional location. <laughs> um, yes. I, and I, I have to admit, uh, I, I've I feel really bummed that Bridgeport IPA is no longer a thing. I have oh, I, I have very fond memories of sitting on their dock after going to Powell's, reading yeah. a book, eating a pizza, and drinking a pitcher of cast conditioned Bridgeport IPA. Well, yeah. you sound like a typical Portland hipster now. <laughs> I, I know, right? And I mean, that's just that was before the remodel too, because it was still a, a charming but not slick place. Yeah. And they had the hops growing over the top out there and then yep. on the dock. That was perfect. Yeah. Yeah. M- much miss uh, that place. All right. And Gail, what got you into good beer and homebrewing? Uh, back in the late nineties, um, I found Guinness and that was my, became my go-to. It was really the first sort of craft ish beer that I had ever had. And, um, I was broke at the time, couldn't really afford Guinness, so I went to a local homebrew shop, Adventures in Homebrewing, and um, they got me into a kit, and I made my first um, Irish Stout, and been hooked ever since. And how how well did it do? I'm sorry? How, how well did your first Stout go? <laughs> well, it turned out uh, kind of like a nut brown. <laughs> it wasn't much of a stout, but uh, it was very good, very drinkable, and I still love Guinness to this day, but it's not my go-to anymore. I was going to say, so, so many choices now, um, but I, I will say I still have a soft spot in my heart for the the Belgian Guinness. That stuff is amazing. That'd be good. Yeah. All right. 
circling back around, uh, Amy, uh, what uh, what's the the latest thing that you've been brewing, or are you going to brew for uh, Big Brew Day here? As as we speak, Big Brew is this weekend, so keep that in mind. Yes. Okay. Actually, um, the last thing I made was a Belgian wild ale, which was with the Grobenzi Fermentation Guild that I'm in here in northern Michigan. And it was really cool because it was quite a collaborative effort. And I love that everyone had an opportunity to have a hand in something. And I am going to be brewing this weekend for the virtual Big Brew Day. And I am brewing another wild ale. Um, this one, I have harvested some yeast off of different things that I forward, foraged. And I'm growing up yeast from apple buds, white pine needles, dandelions, pine cones, and red maple bark. So hopefully hopefully some of them turn active by Saturday. <laughs> that sounds very cool. Um, I'm trying to it's, – it's also a little bit of a daredevil act, but I, uh, I like that. Yeah, I've been um, definitely reading a lot of Pascal Boudard's book, The Wild Crafting Brewer, mm-hmm. and that has kind of challenged me to do some more experimental things. Yeah, I think – the interesting thing recently has been the amount of sourdough baking that we've seen because people, I think, now suddenly have a realization that yeast is everywhere. So <laughs> be interesting to see what sort of results you get. Um, all right. Absolutely. Annie, what you brewing? Um, well, our club has a, a beer that we're going to probably do from a local brewery to support restaurant workers. Mm-hmm. With a, a hop, actually, I think it's from, Cassie might be able to help me here, from Michigan, and, or, and there's one from Germany. What is it? The Grundgeist? Grund? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Sorry. I was having audio problems because my cat decided to unplug all of my uh, computer <laughs> stuff. He's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. It, it's a hazy IPA, so um, for those that know me really well, I'll be leaving out the gravy portion of that. And probably turning it into a um, type of uh, a, just a little bit lower alcohol um, lager instead of instead of that. That I just made a New Zealand pale ale um, about a week and a half ago, so uh, I'm I'm pretty up on the you know hoppy stuff. So this one I'm looking forward to. But I did like the AHA's list of the top twenty or the mm-hmm. last twenty. Um, it's always fun beer. to see that. Yeah, there were some good ones on there. So I always like to do a version coming in the summer of your Citra um, Saison, which I like a lot. That, that um, is a good beer. That's a great beer. So I'll probably do that. And then I, I'm tr- I'm not drinking as much because it, it, it makes me kind of anxious, and it's not a really good time to be anxious. So, but I'm looking forward to, to the big brew. It should be tons of fun, and oh, it's also um, a grilling day for the whole country. So you're supposed to go out and grill or barbecue on your front stoop or porch or your yard, so you can be social at a distance. So I'm going to do that too. There you go. Yeah, I've, I've gotten very fond of waving at my neighbors recently. All right. Oh yeah. Cassie, what you got, Maroon? 
Uh, so I, I'm happy to provide a little bit more detail on the beer Annie was talking about because that's actually what was going to brew for brew, Big Brew Day. Originally, I was going to do the Polaris that was posted on the website, but I didn't get a chance to brew the uh, IPA that Annie was talking about yet. So I'm going to brew that instead. Uh, so it's from Rubens Brewing, which is a, a local brewery here in Seattle. Uh, it's called You Are Not Alone IPA. It's uh, all the proceeds are going to food service workers through Big Table. Um, Rubens was uh, super awesome to donate like 11 pounds of this Grungeist, uh, means green ghost. Uh, these hops, they have like a peach, passion fruit, kind of lemon zesty characteristics. Um, and then we got uh, a Michigan brewery or a Michigan uh, hop place. I can't remember. I wish I could remember which place donated into them because it was very, very nice of them to do so. Uh, so forgive me, uh, sponsors. Uh, they're donating some, uh, or they donated some Northwest Chinook hops from Michigan. So um, pretty exciting stuff. Uh, and also uh, Sound Homebrew, our local homebrew store. One of our local homebrew stores uh, gave us a bit of a discount on the, the grain. So basically it's a nice project for a lot of different kind of Seattle local uh, businesses to get together and also a Michigan business, which ironically is uh, we didn't plan that knowing, you know, that two members uh, from the GC would also be from Michigan. I guess Michigan folks are just friendly. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I'm really excited to get brewing on it. Uh, I uh, hope to kind of compare it to the uh, you are not alone uh, that Rubens has uh, at the brewery because it's it's and it's just an exciting project just like big brew day it's cool to feel connected to your community especially in a time like this where you feel so disconnected right right well and i'm, I'm wondering if that michigan's either uh, was it mighty axe or the michigan hop growers alliance there's a couple i'm gonna look on our our instagram because i'm pretty sure we gave them a shout out uh so let me see if i can find it because they definitely deserve a shout out. <laughs> well, what's cool they sent, is- Oh, Hophead Farms. Hophead Farms. No, yeah. wait. Hophead is the one who did the Grungeist. Damn it. Okay, hold on. I'll find this. <laughs> <laughs> Top Hops. Top Hops is... Um, they've donated a lot of hops recently. And I think they were going to be having the hops that were for the Big Brew recipe. All right. Well, I'm, I'm curious. I've got some of the Michigan Schnook on its way to me right now. And I'm curious because of the characteristic changes people talk about, like, oh, it's pineapple. The ones we at least linked on Instagram were Hophead Farms, Yakima Valley, and Yakima Chief are all people we got donations from. So thanks to those guys for hooking us up so that we can, you know, continue to make cool beer together. There you go. All right. And Chris, what are you brewing? I am unfortunately not going to be brewing this weekend. Um, I've been getting some parts for my new equipment, and uh, I think with the delay of shipping, they are not going to arrive before the weekend gets here. So, uh, yeah, uh, sucks. But uh, my go-tos right now have been uh, ESBs. I've been enjoying the the English, the dark milds. Um, so the, those are, those are what I've been gravitating to. Well, and I think I think a dark mild is what I'm going to be making on Saturday. So. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll try and back to back a batch because miles just so nice and easy. Um, yes. Well, and so you've been doing ESBs. Like, have you been trying to do? Uh, by the time this comes out, the next episode of the Brew Files will be out, which is all about party guile brewing uh, with Peter Simmons from uh, Australia, and he's talking a lot about how hard it is to recreate some of those British styles because we don't do guile brewing a lot. 
Uh, I kind of ran into that. Uh, I have a tropical stout that I tried to do as traditional as possible. Um, but, you know, finding yeast, finding the something that was equivalent to their grain at the time um, was extremely hard for me to do. But I got as close as I could, and I, I won the uh, Oregon Brew Crew uh, Collaborator Award with it. So uh, I, I think I did an okay job. There you go. I mean, look, even with all these recreations, you know, it's an interesting challenge. It's a fun challenge, but really at the same time, the real point is make good beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my uh, my husband has a, a quote that will probably make some of uh, the other North Seattle homebrewers laugh if they hear me say it on here. But uh, whenever people ask him, like, what his strategy is for brewing or whatever, he goes, it'll be beer. It'll be beer. That's true. Be- so as long as it's beer, you're good. <laughs> Yeah, my my rule of thumb is that uh, beer wants to happen. So, all right, and that leaves us with Gail. Gail, what you been brewing or planning on? Uh, I'll be I'll be brewing an American Pale Ale. Um, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is my my go to, but it won't be exactly like that. It'll be probably halfway between Sierra Nevada and Two Hearted ish <laughs> with the hops that I have on hand. Well, that, that's a real tough uh, tough choice. Do I want do I want Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or do I want Two Hearted? That's right. Yeah, I'm actually a little stoked that uh, we actually can see Two Hearted out here now in California. So nice, uh, so nice. Yeah, because that was always one of those beers where I mean, previously the only time I ever saw it was when I was up in that neck of the neck of the country. And so yeah, I used to have to bribe people to send me Oberon for Oberon Day. It was uh, not easy. <laughs> this is true. So. It's good to see that increased availability. All right, so one last question, and then I'll let you guys go about your day. Um, Amy, uh, what makes your beer uniquely yours? And I think you may have already answered this. Well, um, I guess I would say that I tend to source at least some of my ingredients in each brew locally. I'm fortunate to live in an area that produces some excellent hops and malt. We love My Local Hops and Michigan Hop Alliance. And Empire Malt Co. is awesome. Allison the Maltster grows all of the barley she malts right down the road from here. And in addition to local ingredients, now that I'm attempting to grow up my own yeast, um, I'm really excited to make it a very Michigan brew. There you go. Love it. All right, Annie, what makes your beer uniquely yours? Oh, boy. Um, probably because I'm, I don't know. <laughs> you know what? Probably out of your your homebrew all stars because I'm so old school. I um I really like to you know I, I really like to brew the the classics, the Belgians and the the Czechs and the German beers. That that and 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 the amber. I mean uh, that California red. That's that's my my favorite. So I think that and and then I have you know. Thinking outside the box, I brew a lot with, you know, things from the garden mm-hmm. uh, and flowers and, and herbs and different things. And I think one of the things I've been trying to perfect is this beer with water from Puget Sound, a goza. And there's a Salish salt that's just north of of Seattle that I'd like to get and, and try to you can buy it, but I'd like to do it myself and see if I can flake it off and, and get some local, um, you know, some local coriander so I can just make it all. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the you know local maltster Skagit Valley and see if I can make something that's, that just is exactly from like a a three sixty of 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 my house. But we'll see. I don't know. I'm an ideas gal, but you know, not a lot of follow through. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll we'll see. But that's what makes me me. Well, I was going to say, it makes me laugh, though, that you I mean, you sit there and you say, like, you're an old school master type, you know, that you, you're, you have a lot of fondness for tradition. And yet you're the only person I know who makes a fried chicken beer. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, somebody, somebody had the nerve to ask me if I actually use, did I, they go, well, you don't use real chicken, do you? I'm like, well, of course you do. How can you make a chicken beer without chicken? But I have been thinking um, along those lines of of doing a, a kvike. I hope I said that right because I say it wrong all, most of the time. Beer, but I want to do it. The you know I was watching those videos that I was getting off of the um, our friends at, at Chip over at Chop and Brew, and I want to do it with my hot rocks. Um, out in the fire pit and see how authentic I can really get it. And then I got this super cool yeast um, vial from bootleg guys. And and uh, so I want to see if I can just maybe put on some, you know, like an old scraggly beard and pre- pretend I'm from Finland and just go and go for it. <laughs> it's just beer, uh, right? I, 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 I want to see pictures. I will take you know what? I was thinking about doing that. I'm going to start videoing myself and just putting it out there for, for anybody who wants to point and laugh. <laughs> yeah. and, and these days, I think we could all use it with a good laugh. Heck but, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Miss Cassie, what makes your beer uniquely yours? Well, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I mean, the reason why you and I met was because I asked you about combining coconut and vanilla and... Uh, uh, what with macadamia nuts mm-hmm. and all sorts of things into one beer. I like doing, uh, I know they get kind of a lot of flack sometimes, but I like doing interesting adjuncts and like trying to coax those flavors out of like just raw ingredients um, rather than just adding them. So like, you know, getting vanilla from oak is like a simple version, but things like that. I, I really love flavor combinations. I, I come at it. I come at brewing the same way that I came, uh, I come to cooking, you know, is like try to bring things together, use my nose, use the, how things taste to make some really interesting combinations. Um, I'd say the most successful results would be Frank and I do a collaboration stuffing beer, which sounds weird, but is usually really well received. People ask for it at his work. Um, it's supposed to taste like Stouffer's box, top, like that stovetop stuffing. Um, mm-hmm. and it does. It's so, it's so weird. Uh, we make a, a pecan brown every year together. Um, I recently, following Annie's uh, tutelage in cider making, uh, made a pomegranate cherry cider uh, last year that I loved. So just doing things like that where I can bring different flavors together. Um, I guess mo- most of the uh, traditionalists may poo-poo at me because I don't. Um, I kind of eschew tradition to kind of do new stuff, but that's me. I'm young and exciting. <laughs> and, and exuberant. Exuberant. I like that. There you go. And Chris, what makes your beer uniquely yours? Well, I don't really gravitate to one cell or anything like that. I'm kind of one of those uh, you know, people that see the bright, shiny light and like, oh, hey, that's interesting. Squirrel. Uh, yeah, yeah, squirrel. Uh, 
But uh, when I do see one of those styles, I think I kind of break it down. And I'm like, okay, what makes that unique? And is there anything I can do to twist that? Um, you know, like uh, uh, Cassie was just talking about a pecan brown ale, and, and I do one, but I've toasted the pecans. So I, I do little tiny things with those with my beers that I think, I guess, make it uniquely mine. There you go. And Gail, what makes your beer uniquely yours? Probably... Um, like Annie, uh, I'm of a certain age and I like to, uh, brew the classics. I like to kind of brew to style as much as I can. And one of my favorite beers to brew is, and drink is a mild, um, in addition to Sierra Nevada. Um, but I just work at it and I repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until it gets the way that I want it. And so probably, um, what makes it uniquely mine would be just doing the same thing over and over until I get it right. Uh, yeah, very much just like what Denny does. Three cheers for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, gang, before I let you go and go back to your somewhat normal lives right now, anybody have anything else that they, that they want to talk about or say and, you know, spread the love out to the world? I, I just want to get in there and tell everyone thank you for for your vote and your um, confidence, and I I hope to be a, a good voice for you. I've had just a tiny introduction to the governing committee, um, but uh, you know we got an orientation coming up in a few weeks, and I'm looking forward to that. And then I, other than that, I just I, I I'm worried about everybody all over the world, and I want you to stay healthy and happy. And uh, if you're not feeling good, if you're anxious, you reach out. You do whatever you can. Just reach out because you're not alone. It's an important message, Annie. Yeah, I echo those same sentiments. I um, am grateful for this opportunity. I'm really excited to work with this group of people. Like, uh, I can't believe, you know, it's just kind of like, uh, it's just an incredible feeling, you know, and it's nice to have something like this to look forward to when everything else seems so, um, you know, just not great. And so I'm really grateful to my homebrewing community. I love my homebrew club and our, our members. And so it's exciting to feel like I'm part of, you know, another club uh, with other like more even more people that um, share this hobby with me. So I'm, I, I feel just very honored to, you know, carry this torch forward. <laughs> great. Gosh. You all took the words right out of my mouth. I feel so blessed and honored for this opportunity. And I want to reiterate to everyone that you are not alone. Reach out if you need help and you are loved. All right. Well, I'll tell you, this uh, this whole hobby has actually, yeah, it's been a, a lifesaver during these times. Good distraction and a pretty good community of people. Homebrewers right. are, are an amazing community. Yes, well, all right. Well, and I think that's a wonderful note to end this discussion on. Uh, don't forget, you know, these guys are now your your elected representatives to the AHA Governing Committee. Uh, so they'll be available. You can always ask questions. And I think we should do uh, more of these type, sort of conversations. So thank you, everybody, for taking some time out of your day. I hope that you all have a great big brew or, Chris, a great next brew when you get your parts. And, uh, yeah, let's go make some beer. Yeah, thank you. Cheers to that. Thank you for having us. Yeah, love you, Drew. Cheers.
So there you go. Those are the five people who are going to be helping the AHA and the rest of us who are already on the governing committee get stuff sussed out and hopefully have some new ideas for you and new initiatives. Uh, and remember, you can always contact members of the governing committee to uh, express your concerns and ideas, and uh, we'll take them to the AHA. Uh, like I said, you know, there, there's nothing we can do on our own, but we can certainly make sure that the AHA hears what you guys have to say. Exactly. And remember, these people are your representatives, so that's exactly the entire point that they're there for. And uh, it's still just kind of cool to hear from other homebrewers doing the homebrew thing. Yep, yep. I have been on the governing committee since 2006. So uh, <laughs> it's it's been a while, and it's a very interesting thing. And I would say that uh, if any of you out there are interested in serving the homebrew committee, next time a governing committee election comes up, throw your name in, man. You just never know. Uh, you might get elected, and uh, you might get to see some of your ideas benefiting the entire homebrew community. Exactly. And if you're like me, you know, I always threaten that uh, I'll buy your votes. Just buy me a beer at a uh, club night. <laughs> yeah, right. He's easy. <laughs> okay. We are about ready to wind this baby up. So we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll have some Q&A, quick tip, something other, and then get on the way. Stick around. We'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're going to wrap this thing up, and we're going to start doing that by trying to answer some questions that people have sent in. The first one comes from Greg Stegbauer from Cincinnati, and it goes to Drew. Greg says, thanks for making the podcast. It's helped my brew quality immensely. Boy, I wish I could say the same thing. Mm. I was listening again to Brew Files 85, where you talked about your mortgage killer. You mentioned you hit it with O2 three different times early on in fermentation. Do you do that with all your big beers or only ones over a certain gravity? I brewed a little 1125 English barley wine. I pitched it on top of the entire yeast cake from a 1045 pale ale. I use a drill-powered paint stirrer and immersion chiller for chilling and hit it with 60 seconds of pure O2 at pitch. I would assume there was a metric crude ton of O2 in there. I pitched at 62 degrees Fahrenheit, and fermentation was evident within two hours. My fermentation chamber was struggling to keep the brew below 66 degrees four hours after pitch. 
It settled out to 69 degrees Fahrenheit for about the last 12 hours. Would you suggest hitting it with O2 again, and at what point is it too late? I'm shooting for a final gravity in the 1035 range, if that info is helpful at all. So what do you say, bud? Well, okay, so no, I don't do three auction hits with my big beers. I only do that with my ludicrous beers. So Mortgage Killer, for instance, is a ludicrous beer. Uh, the Falcon's Claws is a ludicrous beer. And those are those have starting gravities that are like 1140. So um, you're 1125. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I might think about that at that point. But when it's a big, big beer like that, and I will qualify a big beer as being something 1090 and above. When it's a big beer, a lot of times I'd like to do two hits of oxygen. But I never like to do oxygen outside of the 24-hour range, um, with the exception of the mortgage killer, where I hit it again with oxygen at the 36-hour mark. Um, so the way I the way I tend to do that would just be, you know, every 12 hours or so, or every day. And yeah, I mean, I think given the situation that you're in, you're 11:25, which is stupendous, but not ludicrous, and you have a big healthy yeast cake. I'd suspect that you're fine, particularly if the fermentation's, you know, going like gangbusters. So at that point, given where we are and the fact that you asked this question a day or two ago and I forgot to answer, it's too late. So don't do that. Uh, but in the future, like I said, I like to do one or two, uh, oxygen hits no later than 24 to 36 hours after, for, after pitching. So that's my take. Yeah, um, I, I suppose for, for certain beers that are just huge, uh, that can be a good thing. I generally don't go crazy about oxygenating things like that because I have a tendency to pitch so much yeast that it, it probably is of little benefit. Although, again, if I was up to 1125, I'd probably rethink that. Uh, just, just a little quick note here on make sure you understand why you're oxygenating. The yeast uses the oxygen to synthesize sterols, which are fatty acids that they use to keep the cell walls flexible, which makes it easier for the yeast cells to bud and reproduce, right? So the thing is, if you pitch a whole bunch of yeast to start with, there's a lot less need for that to happen. So that consequently means less need for aeration slash oxygenation also. Now, again, it's it's a relative thing. Like I said, for an 1125 beer, I would probably do it. But, you know, in general, my way to go about it is to just pitch even more yeast and not have to worry about it. Yep, absolutely. But sometimes it never it never hurts. Okay, oh, um, yeah. Again, it, it, it's situational. And our next question comes from Terry. Terry, the mysterious no last name who wrote in to say, I read on your website about triangle testing. My questions about triangle testing are, are they carried out amongst average beer consumers or among experienced tasters slash panelists? I understand that they are also carried for training future panelists, but I wondered whether you would advise using normal consumers in a triangle test or more experienced tasters. What sample size would you suggest for a triangle test among normal slash average consumers? And what sample size when doing it amongst experienced tasters? Mr. Dincenzo. Well, it, it kind of depends on what you want to know. I generally prefer doing it with people who at least have a, a little bit of experience and knowledge. 
uh, I'm not looking for highly trained tasters. And oftentimes, I just want to have your average consumer do it because when I'm trying to do it, I'm just trying to figure out which beer people prefer. So, like I said, it, it really depends on the uh, the purpose of your triangle testing. You know, do you want to find out what your average consumer thinks of your beer? Do you want to find out uh, what highly experienced people find out? You know, it, totally up to you, Terry. Sample size, uh, I assume that you mean like the, the number of tasters. I would say, you know... Anything, anything is good. I would like, and again, it depends. I mean, when I do it, I am very seldom trying to reach a scientifically valid conclusion that I can say this is the way it is. I'm just trying to get information for myself to use in my own brewing. Uh, you know, three people would be probably a minimum, uh, although, you know, you can do it yourself, uh, you know, you can, do a one-person triangle tasting uh, if that's what you really have. Um, I don't really see any number of tasters that there has to be for validity. More is always better. But if you're just trying to find out if uh, this change or this change works better in your own beer, having somebody pour those beers for you so you can taste them blindly will work well also. Yeah, and to that point, it – Again, it all goes back to what is your goal? Is your goal yeah. that you're trying to develop some sort of a rule? Or are you just trying to you know, detect a process change? So like uh, breweries, when they do their, their panels, I mean, they will actually have trained panelists. You know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the experiments that we do at our levels and whatnot don't use trained panelists in that same way. But you remember, like, for the most part, in a brewery staff, you're going to probably get, like, say, 10, 15 um, if you're trying to do something that's more scientifically meaningful, then you want even more people uh, to be able to really know that you're drawing a, a conclusion. But again, it all depends upon your goal. Uh, like I said, I like at least 15, but sometimes that's hard to get. Yeah, and again, like, you know, if you're just trying to decide on something in your own beer for you, then you don't need 15 people. You just need to be able to blindly taste two samples of your own beer. Yep. All right, and our last question, this one I think we'll both uh, tackle together here, uh, comes from Kevin Foster, who asks about French 75, you know, one of our favorite beers from Song. I actually got asked about that the other day, too. Somebody was trying to find it, and I'm like, going, I don't know where to find it. I, I don't think that they have any uh, that, that they've made lately. They do have some of the old Tom and Tonic available. Yeah, unfortunately, their website only allows shipping to Oregon. Jerks. Ah. Uh. Um, so Kevin asks, the combination of a whole lot of golden sour beer batches coming to a maturity and having plenty of quarantine downtime has me starting to get my annual blending project started. Besides the usual suspect fruit batches, I will be experimenting with a couple of new ideas. I think I remember a very similar idea being discussed on the show a while ago, so I thought I'd see what you thought. Here it goes. Start with a relatively clean, low-moderate acidity-based beer blend. I already started a tincture of gin and lemon peels slash zest. When that's ready... Dose that into a keg as needed with the beer, a 750 milliliter bottle of finished Costco Kirkland brand Brut Champagne, and priming sugar. Let that cellar for a few more months in the keg to condition, and let the Brett do what it will to the champagne. Do you see anything glaringly wrong with this? Have you dosed a beer, likely Saison, directly with gin in the past? If so, do you have a recommendation for a volume to start with? Looking forward to what you think. So, 
I think this needs to be tackled in two parts, like how we think of French 75. So remember, if you don't know, French 75 is essentially a Tom Collins. So uh, gin, lemon, sugar, and, and a Tom Collins sparkling water in a French 75 champagne. Great, great drink. Um, and so the idea is, okay, are you trying to make the, the French 75? I'm fairly certain, correct me if I'm wrong here, Danny, Ale Song, for instance, doesn't use champagne in theirs. No, no, they uh, they use a Brett Saison, and the Brett is not real forward, you know, it, it's kind of just like a component that doesn't shout Brett at you, and they age it in a gin barrel with lemon peels. Uh, no no champagne added, I don't think that would even be legal for a commercial brewery, maybe, I don't know, because it's wine, huh? but uh, they, they don't do it, and to tell you the truth, I see that as a bad idea, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what that's going to bring to you, right? Because I'm sure. Okay, champagne will have some some sweetness to it because of uh, the chapelization and whatnot. But the, I, I mean, think the Brett saison pretty much serves the purpose of the champagne, right? right. It's a, yeah, I mean, it's, really, what you're it, wanting it, it's is you're sparkly. Wanting... It's light. It's refreshing. You know. So I just, and especially if you're going to age it, uh, I would say, you know, I, it just does not resonate with me yeah I, I i mean i think it's like i think it's an interesting idea at least as something to play with one i don't tend to like the flavor of champagne yeast or the the flavor that the champagne yeast imparts to champagne so i me i think i'm with denny on this one i think i, I would skip it the champagne i've done gin into into beers before as denny mentioned the the ale song beer is a gin barrel uh, and so they'll get residual gin coming out of the wood there, but yeah, I mean, I've done gin into, into a beer before tastes perfectly fine. Uh, and how much to start with? Um, I'd probably start with a pint, maybe less. Remember you can always start with less. You can always add. Yeah. More. I, w- I would do the old, uh, you know, try various amounts in a glass and then scale it up technique. Yeah, and and what might also be an interesting idea is uh, well, actually, you already said you were doing a tincture of gin and, and lemon peels, so you're you're already there because that would be my my thing is macerate the lemon in the gin and then use that. But yeah, I agree. I mean, the safest option to do is do exactly what Denny's talking about, which is to do a tasting uh, sample and do a nice measured measured amounts so you can actually scale that up and do an appropriate ratio. The other thing that you might want to think about is what you're going to do about any sort of residual sweetness, because a French 75 usually does have some residual sweetness. The Ale Song doesn't have a lot of residual sweetness, but it has a lot of fluffiness to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, again, that comes from the, that base Brett Saison that they use. Yep. So that's my thoughts. Skip the champagne. Absolutely do the do the, the gin and uh, lemon peels. Uh, I think my favorite one I ever did was I did one that was uh, – uh, gin and Earl Grey tea in a saison, so naturally, a very confused beer. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, man, that uh, that sounds a little bit uh, schizophrenic. Well, you know, it was uh, it was a Hercule Poirot beer in a way. <laughs> so. Okay, so it's time to move on to the quick tip, and you have that one today, huh? Yep, quick tip. This is gonna seem somewhat. Uh, since uh, well nonsensical that you even have to say this but uh, it turns out you do uh, make sure if you're going to talk about a beer 
like say you're pouring a beer for somebody or you got uh, you're going to present to a club or you're going to talk about something online, keep your notes handy, people. Keep them handy because otherwise you're going to sit there and go, uh, I think I did blank. And so I have a habit now of I take the the printouts that I use on Brew Day, you know, from Brewers Friends. I'll I'll take the the printout. I'll mark my notes on there for what happened with that batch on that particular day, and then very much kind of like a brewer's clipboard and log sheet, uh, except for without the clipboard, I just tape it to the kegerator or fermenter, and then that way I can track it. It stays with the, it stays with the keg, and then they vanish, but it's still a good <laughs> idea. Uh, and you guys are all taking extensive notes out there when you brew, I know, right? Oh yeah, all the all over the place. So that's my uh, that's my uh, that's my quick tip. Make sure that you keep your notes handy because it's good to be able to talk about your beer and actually talk about the reality and not what you think you did. And again, as we always do, we're going to leave you with something other than beer because even in quarantine times, it's not just about the beer. And during quarantine times, we need more entertainment. So, Denny, what you got? I've been listening to a lot more music than I used to these days. I know that you probably have heard me say about how I kind of burned out on music. Well, I've gone from my uh, all-day NPR stints, which I have now totally burned out on. There's only so much news you can take. And I'm listening to a lot more music. Uh, we have a, a killer student-run radio station here called KRVM. Uh, it's streaming, just in case anybody else wants to check it out. I'm finding there's a lot of stuff there that I don't like. A lot of times I'm going, oh, my God, trite lyrics. I've heard that chord progression 10,000 times. But there's some really good stuff, too, and one that I have just run across that is is like a total earworm and stuck in my head all the time is a woman named Margaret Glaspy. That's G-L-A-S-P-Y. She has a song called Stay With Me that I am totally addicted to. She has a, a great kind of like wispy, vulnerable voice, uh, really quirky chord changes, great lyrics. I mean, where else are you going to hear behavior and savior rhymed? Uh, you know, I haven't heard a lot more of her besides this song, but I just love this song. So do yourself a favor. Go out there. Check out Margaret Glaspy. Uh, there's stuff of, of hers all over, especially the song Stay With Me. But, uh, you know, just about anything of hers will be interesting. And it's always great to find new music. So, yeah, you sent me that track, and I have to admit, it is both fam- familiar and comforting and just different enough to make you go, huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she does a bunch of stuff. And you go, oh, that's an interesting twist she threw in there. So, and yeah, and that's that's what it takes for me to get into music. I've heard all the same old stuff too many times. There we go. And just to also keep on the the line of something that is uh, simultaneously familiar but also very very different. I just just about finished reading the first book in a new trilogy that's called the Locked Tomb Trilogy. And the book itself is called Gideon the Ninth. It's written by uh, Tamsin Muir. And she's written a book. Uh, well, okay, so the familiar part is it is a space empire with nine planets that house different houses, right? And they've been called together by their emperor to take a test in pairs to see who will succeed to the next level, right? That seems very familiar. Now for the twist. These nine planets in this whole space empire is an undying empire of space necromancers. And their emperor is 7,000 plus years old, who's fighting a war to protect this whole uh, part of humanity. 
using the powers of necromancy. <laughs> well, <laughs> there is something different. Yeah, and so this uh, the whole story rotates around this character named Gideon, who was an orphan who ended up getting adopted into one of these necromancy houses, but has also been sort of beaten and abused and and sort of tortured and tried to escape and has been headstrong and everything else. And the princess who runs that particular planet that she lives on has decided to enlist her to be her second in this test that the emperor is putting together. And so it's a very interesting relationship between the two of them. Very interesting relationship between the, uh, all the different characters and then all the different forms of necromancy that, that she's describing in the book. It is, like I said, at the same time familiar and yet different enough to make you go, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure sounds like it. <laughs> so again, that's Gideon the Ninth from Tamsin Muir. All righty. And after all that, we are going to be getting the heck out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, we have a column in Brew Your Own Magazine also, so check that out. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, I hang out a lot on the AHA forum and on Facebook and a bunch of other beer forums. You can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. If you ever want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always give us a call at 626-765-1AL, leave us a voicemail, send us a text. Uh, I don't think Drew actually answers the number, but who knows? You might be able to actually talk to him sometime. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. <laughs>